295, Chapter 26 of Jane Eyre. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 295, Part 1, Mad. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And links to all of our sponsors can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. Please visit them as their support for the show is one of the things that keeps it free for you. Well, if you are feeling observant, you have noticed that I have titled this week 295 Part 1 and that there is going to be a 295 Part 2 which will be released almost simultaneously with 295 Part 1. And that is because if I did not release these two chapters today, back-to-back, I would fear for my or my children's safety. It's that kind of chapter set. That being said, I did want to share one little tidbit with you. First off, quilters, I hope you had a great day. On Saturday last, I hope you went out and quilted in public, if it was even possible. This week for knitters, I found a really awesome cast on. It is from the Tech Knitting blog, which, if you haven't discovered it before, is really spectacular. There is a kind of a cast on you can do in crochet, which is used extensively in anything that you have to start um, that requires a very tight starting point. Like if you've made any of the little, the little creatures, the little zombies, that uh, creepy cute crochet guys, uh, her patterns all start with this particular crochet. And I know you're saying, wait, you were talking about knitting. Why are you talking about crochet? Because it's the same principle. In this kind of crochet cast on, you basically are crocheting around a loop so that when you're done with all the little starting bits that you create on that loop, you can pull the tail end of that loop and it slurps it all together and takes all of those stitches that you just made and pulls them into a really tight little circle. So it would be like great for the start of a granny square kind of thing or the head of a creepy cute crochet doll. Well, I'm actually knitting something that I've had a pattern for for about 100 years called a grabbit. You will probably see this in your local yarn store. They're little paperback pamphlet patterns, hand-drawn covers, written in the mid to late 90s, and they're kind of ubiquitous. There's there's sweaters that she's done. There's all sorts of stuff that she's done. But this grabbit looked to me to be ideal for a kind of a grab-and-go picnic blanket diaper bag thing. And so I thought I'd make one for my sister since her baby is starting to be mobile and spring is coming, in fact, right now. So I started to, to read the pattern and I could not parse the instructions at all for the cast on. 
So I did some searching and some digging, and I found on the Tech Knitting blog the very same idea. The instructions appear to be a little different, but the very same idea as what's in the Grabbit pattern and what is done by crocheters when they create that kind of cool magic loop start to a project. If you've ever done a provisional cast on where you have, uh, I think sometimes they call it a tubular cast on. It's actually, I've seen people call it all sorts of cast ons, but it's where you have a strand of waste yarn and you're basically casting on around that tube of waste yarn so that when you are done knitting whatever it is you're going to knit, if you have to go back to the start and go the other direction, like for instance, I did this in a pattern that I designed for uh, Defarge Does Shakespeare, which will be out later, where I did one half of this item going one direction, but then I wanted to go back to that center point and go the other direction so that it's perfectly mirrored. Well, the way to do that is to have this provisional cast on and you have either a extra circular needle or an extra piece of yarn there that you can remove. And here, there are live stitches, and isn't that cool? Well, this takes that idea, but instead of having extra yarn or a circular needle, because you ultimately want to get a very tight circular starting point from which you can build a shawl, or you can build, in this case, a grabbit, you have this crazy, nutty, funky cast on where you are kind of literally casting on around your starting loop. I'm so blown away at the inventiveness of this. And I, I had to kind of trust myself that I was not needing to fully understand the instructions, but at least kind of sort of fake it based on the pictures because it's really complicated to read and it is almost equally complicated to, to do. But once I did it, it was one of those moments where you just kind of think, whoa, this is so cool. I want to do it again and again and again and again and again, because it worked. As soon as I was done with the cast on, I pulled the tail end super tight and <laughs> there's no center hole in the middle of my grabbit anymore. There's just a tight ring of stitches, just like you get with crochet. Now, some of you are going to say, well, why don't you just crochet this stupid thing? And the, uh, the answer is, I think I probably could. Uh, but my, my wrist is not happy with crochet. So any of you who know tricks for changing hand position, like with knitting, I can switch back and forth between British and continental or um, the co cottage production knitting. I can switch back and forth between all of those now, which is great. But I don't, I can't physically figure out how to switch up my grip for crochet, and I've been hurting my wrist lately. So if you have any ideas, please put them in the show notes, comments, or in the comments on Ravelry. I'd be fascinated. I think I actually would probably need to see pictures of how you change your hold for crocheting. Um, yeah, so... That's been a frustration, but also an exciting thing because I found this great new cast on. So there are links to all of that in the show notes this week. And now Jane. Now the first chapter, chapter 26, is briefer than chapter 27. Chapter 27 is quite long. So I'm not going to say a whole lot to you before we start listening. You won't need all that much from me. After chapter 26, I need to go over a few things with you, and then you can move on to the next part 
of episode 295, part two, which will be chapter 27. And then you can listen to that. I know some people, when I did the larger survey, some people said that it was uh, difficult for them downloading and uh, portableizing uh, longer podcasts, things that went well over an hour, hour and 10 minutes. So I'm, I'm trying to rectify that situation by splitting the episodes this way. So if you wondered why I'm doing it, that's why. Now, truly, the only thing I'm going to give you before we start chapter 26 is this. The word Lorne, for some reason, the word jumped out at me the most recent time that I listened to this chapter. And, you know, we hear forlorn, we hear lovelorn, but I never really knew what Lorne meant. It's kind of like Ruth. We have Ruth less, but we don't really say Ruth anymore. Lorne simply means lonely and abandoned. And if there is a chapter where that word is appropriate, it is the chapter you are about to hear. I'm not going to give you any more than that. You enjoy listening to chapter 26 of Jane Eyre. Sophie came at seven to dress me. She was very long indeed in accomplishing her task, so long that Mr. Rochester, grown, I suppose, impatient of my delay, sent up to ask why I did not come. She was just fastening my veil, the plain square of blonde after all, to my hair with a brooch. I hurried from under her hands as soon as I could. "'Stop!' she cried in French. "'Look at yourself in the mirror. You have not taken one peep.' So I turned at the door. I saw a robed and veiled figure, so unlike my usual self that it seemed almost the image of a stranger. "'Jane!' called a voice, and I hastened down. I was received at the foot of the stairs by Mr. Rochester. "'Lingerer,' he said, "'my brain is on fire with impatience, and you tarry so long.' He took me into the dining-room, surveyed me keenly all over, pronounced me, "'Fair as a lily, and not only the pride of his life, but the desire of his eyes.' And then telling me he would give me but ten minutes to eat some breakfast, he rang the bell. One of his lately hired servants, a footman, answered it. "'Is John getting the carriage ready?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Is the luggage brought down?' "'They are bringing it down, sir.' "'Go you to the church. See if Mr. Wood,' the clergyman, "'and the clerk are there. Return and tell me.' The church, as the reader knows, was but just beyond the gates. The footman soon returned. "'Mr. Wood is in the vestry, sir, putting on his surplice.' "'And the carriage?' "'The horses are harnessing.' We shall not want it to go to church, but it must be ready the moment we return, all the boxes and luggage arranged and strapped on, and the coachman in his seat. Yes, sir. Jane, are you ready? I rose. There were no groomsmen, no bridesmaids, no relatives to wait for or marshal, none but Mr. Rochester and I. Mrs. Fairfax stood in the hall as we passed. I would fain have spoken to her— but my hand was held by a grasp of iron. I was hurried along by a stride I could hardly follow, and to look at Mr. Rochester's face was to feel that not a second of delay would be tolerated for any purpose. I wonder what other bridegroom ever looked as he did, so bent up to a purpose, so grimly resolute, or who, under such steadfast brows, ever revealed such flaming and flashing eyes. I know not whether the day was fair or foul— in descending the drive I gazed neither on sky nor earth. My heart was with my eyes, and both seemed migrated into Mr. Rochester's frame. 
I wanted to see the invisible thing on which, as we went along, he appeared to fasten a glance fierce and fell. I wanted to feel the thoughts whose force he seemed breasting and resisting. At the churchyard wicket he stopped. He discovered I was quite out of breath. "'Am I cruel in my love?' he said. "'Delay an instant. Lean on me, Jane.' And now I can recall the picture of the old grey house of God rising calm before me, of a rook wheeling round the steeple, of a ruddy morning sky beyond. I remember something, too, of the green grave mounds, and I have not forgotten either two figures of strangers straying amongst the low hillocks and reading the mementos graven on the few mossy headstones. I noticed them, because as they saw us, they passed round to the back of the church— and I doubted not but they were going to enter by the side aisle door and witness the ceremony. By Mr. Rochester they were not observed. He was earnestly looking at my face from which the blood had, I dare say, momentarily fled, for I felt my forehead dewy, and my cheeks and lips cold. When I rallied, which I soon did, he walked gently with me up the path to the porch. We entered the quiet and humble temple. The priest waited in his white surplice at the lowly altar, the clerk beside him. All was still. Two shadows only moved in a remote corner. My conjecture had been correct. The strangers had slipped in before us, and they now stood by the vault of the Rochesters, their backs towards us, viewing through the rails the old time-stained marble tomb, where a kneeling angel guarded the remains of Demare de Rochester, slain at Marston Moor in the time of the civil wars, and of Elizabeth, his wife. Our place was taken at the communion rails— Hearing a cautious step behind me, I glanced over my shoulder. One of the strangers, a gentleman evidently, was advancing up the chancel. The service began. The explanation of the intent of matrimony was gone through, and then the clergyman came a step further forward, and bending slightly towards Mr. Rochester, went on. "'I require and charge you both, as you will answer at the dreadful day of judgment when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed, that if either of you know any impediment why you may not lawfully be joined together in matrimony, ye do now confess it. For be ye well assured that so many as are coupled together otherwise than God's word doth allow, are not joined together by God, neither is their matrimony lawful.' He paused, as the custom is. When is the pause after that sentence ever broken by reply? not, perhaps, once in a hundred years, and the clergyman, who had not lifted his eyes from his book, and had held his breath but for a moment, was proceeding. His hand was already stretched towards Mr. Rochester, as his lips unclosed to ask, "'Wilt thou have this woman for thy wedded wife?' when a distinct and near voice said, "'The marriage cannot go on. I declare the existence of an impediment.' The clergyman looked up at the speaker and stood mute. The clerk did the same. Mr. Rochester moved slightly, as if an earthquake had rolled under his feet. Taking a firmer footing, and not turning his head or eyes, he said, "'Proceed.' Profound silence fell when he had uttered that word, with deep but low intonation. Presently Mr. Wood said, "'I cannot proceed without some investigation into what has been asserted, and evidence of its truth or falsehood.' "'The ceremony is quite broken off,' subjoined the voice behind us. I am in a condition to prove my allegation. An insuperable impediment to this marriage exists. Mr. Rochester heard, but he did not. He stood stubborn and rigid, making no movement but to possess himself of my hand. What a hot and strong grasp he had, and how like a quarried marble was his pale, firm, massive front at this moment. 
how his eyes shone, still watchful and yet wild beneath. Mr. Wood seemed at a loss. "'What is the nature of the impediment?' he asked. "'Perhaps it may be got over, explained away.' "'Hardly,' was the answer. "'I have called it insuperable, and I speak advisedly.' The speaker came forward and leaned on the rails. He continued uttering each word distinctly, calmly, steadily, but not loudly. "'It simply consists in the existence of a previous marriage. Mr. Rochester has a wife, now living.' My nerves vibrated to those low-spoken words as they had never vibrated to thunder. My blood felt their subtle violence as it had never felt frost or fire. But I was collected, and in no danger of swooning. I looked at Mr. Rochester. I made him look at me. His whole face was colourless rock— his eye was both spark and flint. He disavowed nothing. He seemed as if he would defy all things. Without speaking, without smiling, without seeming to recognise in me a human being, he only twined my waist with his arm and riveted me to his side. "'Who are you?' he asked of the intruder. "'My name is Briggs, a solicitor of Blank Street, London.' "'And you would thrust on me a wife?' I would remind you of your lady's existence, sir, which the law recognises, if you do not. Favour me with an account of her, with her name, her parentage, her place of abode. Certainly. Mr. Briggs calmly took a paper from his pocket, and read out in a sort of official, nasal voice. I affirm and can prove that on the 20th of October, A.D., a date of some fifteen years back, Edward Fairfax Rochester of Thorfield Hall in the county of Blank, and of Ferndean Manor in Blankshire, England, was married to my sister, Bertha Antoinetta Mason, daughter of Jonas Mason, merchant, and of Antoinetta, his wife, a Creole, at Blank Church, Spanish Town, Jamaica. The record of the marriage will be found in the register of that church. A copy of it is now in my possession. Signed, Richard Mason. That, if a genuine document, may prove I have been married, but it does not prove that the woman mentioned therein as my wife is still living. She was living three months ago, returned the lawyer. How do you know? I have a witness to the fact whose testimony even you, sir, will scarcely controvert. Produce him, or go to hell. I will produce him first. He is on the spot. Mr. Mason, have the goodness to step forward." Mr. Rochester, on hearing the name, set his teeth. He experienced, too, a sort of strong, convulsive quiver. Near to him as I was, I felt the spasmodic movement of fury or despair run through his frame. The second stranger, who had hitherto lingered in the background, now drew near. A pale face looked over the solicitor's shoulder. Yes, it was Mason himself. Mr. Rochester turned and glared at him. His eye, as I have often said, was a black eye. It now had a tawny— nay, a bloody light in its gloom, and his face flushed, olive cheek and hueless forehead received a glow as from spreading, ascending heart-fire, and he stirred, lifted his strong arm, he could have struck Mason, dashed him on the church floor, shocked by a ruthless blow the breath from his body, but Mason shrank away and cried faintly, "'Good God!' Contempt fell cool on Mr. Rochester, his passion died as if a blight had shriveled it up, he only asked, "'What have you to say?' An audible reply escaped Mason's white lips. "'The devil is in it if you cannot answer distinctly. I again demand, what have you to say?' "'Sir, sir,' interrupted the clergyman, "'do not forget you are in a sacred place.' 
Then, addressing Mason, he inquired gently, "'Are you aware, sir, whether or not this gentleman's wife is still living?' "'Courage,' urged the lawyer. "'Speak out.' "'She is now living at Thornfield Hall,' said Mason, in more articulate tones. "'I saw her there last April. I am her brother.' "'At Thornfield Hall?' ejaculated the clergyman. "'Impossible! I am an old resident in this neighbourhood, sir, and I never heard of a Mrs. Rochester at Thornfield Hall.' I saw a grim smile contort Mr. Rochester's lips, and he muttered, "'No, by God! I took care that none should hear of it, or of her under that name.' He mused. For ten minutes he held counsel with himself. He formed his resolve, and announced it. "'Enough! All shall bolt out at once like the bullet from the barrel. Wood, close your book, and take off your surplice. John Green,' to the clerk, "'leave the church. There will be no wedding to-day.' The man obeyed. Mr. Rochester continued, hardily and recklessly, "'Bigamy is an ugly word. I meant, however, to be a bigamist. But fate has outmanoeuvred me, or providence has checked me, perhaps the last. I am little better than a devil at this moment, and as my pastor there would tell me, deserve no doubt the sternest judgments of God, even to the quenchless fire and deathless worm. Gentlemen, my plan is broken up. What this lawyer and his client say is true.' I have been married, and the woman to whom I was married lives. You say you have never heard of a Mrs. Rochester at the house up yonder wood, but I dare say you have many a time inclined your ear to gossip about the mysterious lunatic kept under watch and ward. Some have whispered to you that she is my bastard half-sister, some my cast-off mistress. I now inform you that she is my wife, whom I married fifteen years ago." Bertha Mason by name, sister of this resolute personage, who is now, with his quivering limbs and white cheeks, showing you what a stout heart men my bear. Cheer up, Dick. Never fear me. I'd almost as soon strike a woman as you. Bertha Mason is mad, and she came of a mad family, idiots and maniacs through three generations. Her mother, the Crayle, was both a madwoman and a drunkard. As I found out, after I had wed the daughter, for they were silent on family secrets before— Bertha, like a dutiful child, copied her parent in both points. I had a charming partner, pure, wise, modest. You can fancy I was a happy man. I went through rich scenes. Oh, my experience has been heavenly, if you only knew it. But I owe you no further explanation. Briggs, Wood, Mason, I invite you all to come up to the house and visit Mrs. Poole's patient and my wife. You shall see what sort of a being I was cheated into espousing, and judge whether or not I had a right to break the compact— and seek sympathy with something at least human. This girl, he continued, looking at me, knew no more than you would of the disgusting secret. She thought all was fair and legal, and never dreamt she was going to be entrapped into a feigned union with a defrauded wretch, already bound to a bad, mad, and embruted partner. Come, all of you, follow. Still holding me fast, he left the church. The three gentlemen came after. At the front door of the hall we found the carriage— "'Take it back to the coach-house, John,' said Mr. Rochester coolly. "'It will not be wanted to-day.' At our entrance, Mrs. Fairfax, Adele, Sophie, Leah, advanced to meet and greet us. "'To the right about, every soul,' cried the master. "'Away with your congratulations. Who wants them? Not I. They are fifteen years too late.' He passed on and ascended the stairs, still holding my hand, and still beckoning the gentlemen to follow him, which they did— we mounted the first staircase, passed up the gallery, proceeded to the third story, 
The low, black door opened by Mr. Rochester's master key admitted us into the tapestried room, with its great bed and its pictorial cabinet. "'You know this place, Mason,' said our guide. "'She bit and stabbed you here.' He lifted the hangings from the wall, uncovering the second door. This, too, he opened— in a room without a window there burnt a fire guarded by a high and strong fender, and a lamp suspended from the ceiling by a chain. Grace Poole bent over the fire, apparently cooking something in a saucepan. In the deep shade at the farther end of the room a figure ran backwards and forwards. What it was, whether beast or human being, one could not at first sight tell— it grovelled seemingly on all fours. It snatched and growled like some strange wild animal, but it was covered with clothing, and a quantity of dark grizzled hair, wild as a mane, hid its head and face. "'Good morrow, Mrs. Poole,' said Mr. Rochester. "'How are you, and how is your charge to-day?' "'We're tolerable, sir, I thank you,' replied Grace, lifting the boiling mess carefully onto the hob. "'Rather snappish, but not rageous.' A fierce cry seemed to give the lie to her favourable report. The clothed hyena rose up and stood tall on its hind feet. "'Ah, sir, she sees you,' exclaimed Grace. "'You'd better not stay.' "'Only a few moments, Grace. You must allow me a few moments.' "'Take care, then, sir. For God's sake, take care.' The maniac bellowed. She parted her shaggy locks from her visage, and gazed wildly at her visitors. I recognised well that purple face— those bloated features. Mrs. Poole advanced. "'Keep out of the way,' said Mr. Rochester, thrusting her aside. "'She has no knife now, I suppose, and I'm on my guard.' "'One never knows what she has, sir. She is so cunning, it is not in mortal discretion to fathom her craft.' "'We had better leave her,' whispered Mason. "'Go to the devil,' was his brother-in-law's recommendation. "'Where?' cried Grace. The three gentlemen retreated simultaneously— Mr. Rochester flung me behind him. The lunatic sprang and grappled his throat viciously, and laid her teeth to his cheek. They struggled. She was a big woman, in stature almost equalling her husband, and corpulent besides. She showed virile force in the contest. More than once she almost throttled him, athletic as he was. He could have settled her with a well-planted blow, but he would not strike. He would only wrestle. At last he mastered her arms. Grace Poole gave him a cord, and he pinioned them behind her. With more rope which was at hand, he bound her to a chair. The operation was performed amidst the fiercest yells and the most convulsive plunges. Mr. Rochester then turned to the spectators. He looked at them with a smile both acrid and desolate. "'That is my wife,' said he. "'Such is the sole conjugal embrace I am ever to know.' Such are the endearments which are to solace my leisure hours. And this is what I wished to have, laying his hand on my shoulder. This young girl, who stands so grave and quiet at the mouth of hell, looking collectedly at the gambols of a demon, I wanted her just as a change after that fierce ragout. Wood and Briggs look at the difference. Compare these clear eyes with the red balls yonder, this face with that mask, this form with that bulk— then judge me, priest of the gospel and man of the law, and remember with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. Off with you now. I must shut up my prize. We all withdrew. Mr. Rochester stayed a moment behind us to give some further order to Grace Poole. The solicitor addressed me as he descended the stair. You, madam, said he, are cleared from all blame. 
Your uncle will be glad to hear it, if indeed he should be still living, when Mr. Mason returns to Madeira. My uncle? What of him? Do you know him? Mr. Mason does. Mr. Rare has been the functional correspondent of his house for some years. When your uncle received your letter intimating the contemplated union between yourself and Mr. Rochester, Mr. Mason, who was staying at Madeira to recruit his health, on his way back to Jamaica, happened to be with him. Mr. Rare mentioned the intelligence, for he knew that my client here was acquainted with a gentleman of the name of Rochester. Mr. Mason, astonished and distressed, as you may suppose, revealed the real state of matters. Your uncle, I am sorry to say, is now on a sick-bed, from which, considering the nature of his disease, decline, and the stage it has reached, it is unlikely he will ever rise. He could not then hasten to England himself, to extricate you from the snare into which you had fallen, but he implored Mr. Mason to lose no time in taking steps to prevent the false marriage. He referred him to me for assistance. I used all dispatch, and am thankful I was not too late, as you doubtless must be also. Were I not morally certain that your uncle will be dead ere you reach Madeira, I would advise you to accompany Mr. Mason back. But as it is, I think you had better remain in England till you can hear further, either from or of Mr. Rare. Have we anything else to stay for? he inquired of Mr. Mason. No, no, let us be gone, was the anxious reply. And without waiting to take leave of Mr. Rochester, they made their exit at the hall door. The clergyman stayed to exchange a few sentences, either of admonition or reproof, with his haughty parishioner. This duty done, he too departed. I heard him go as I stood at the half-open door of my own room, to which I had now withdrawn. The house cleared, I shut myself in, fastened the bolt that none might intrude, and proceeded, not to weep, not to mourn, I was yet too calm for that, but mechanically to take off the wedding-dress, and replace it by the stuff gown I had worn yesterday, as I thought, for the last time. I then sat down. I felt weak and tired. I leaned my arms on table, and my head dropped on them. And now, I thought, till now I had only heard, seen, moved, followed up and down where I was led or dragged, watched event rush on event, disclosure open beyond disclosure. But now, I thought. The morning had been a quiet morning enough, all except the brief scene with the lunatic, the transaction in the church had not been noisy. There was no explosion of passion, no loud altercation, no dispute, no defiance or challenge, no tears, no sobs. A few words had been spoken, a calmly pronounced objection to the marriage made, some stern, short questions put by Mr. Rochester, answers, explanations given, evidence adduced, an open admission of the truth had been uttered by my master. Then the living proof had been seen, the intruders were gone, and all was over." I was in my own room as usual, just myself, without obvious change. Nothing had smitten me, or scathed me, or maimed me. And yet, where was the Jane Eyre of yesterday? Where was her life? Where were her prospects? Jane Eyre, who had been an ardent, expectant woman, almost a bride, was a cold, solitary girl again. Her life was pale, her prospects were desolate. A Christmas frost had come at midsummer. A white December storm had whirled over June. Ice glazed the ripe apples, drifts crushed the blowing roses. On hayfield and cornfield lay a frozen shroud. Lanes which last night blushed full of flowers, to-day were pathless with untrodden snow. And the woods, which twelve hours since waved leafy and fragrant as groves between the tropics, now spread waste, wild, and white as pine forests in wintry Norway. My hopes were all dead.' 
struck with a subtle doom, such as in one night fell on all the first-born in the land of Egypt. I looked on my cherished wishes, yesterday so blooming and glowing. They lay stark, chill, livid corpses that would never revive. I looked at my love, that feeling which was my master's, which he had created. It shivered in my heart, like a suffering child in a cold cradle. Sickness and anguish had seized it. It could not seek Mr. Rochester's arms. It could not derive warmth from his breast. Oh, never more could it turn to him, for faith was blighted, confidence destroyed. Mr. Rochester was not to me what he had been, for he was not what I had thought him. I would not ascribe vice to him. I would not say he had betrayed me. But the attribute of stainless truth was gone from his idea, and from his presence I must go. That I perceived well. When, how, whither, I could not yet discern. But he himself, I doubted not, would hurry me from Thornfield. Real affection, it seemed, he could not have for me. It had been only fitful passion. That was balked. He would want me no more. I should fare even to cross his path now. My view must be hateful to him. Oh, how blind had been mine eyes! How weak my conduct! My eyes were covered and closed. Eddying darkness seemed to swim round me, and reflection came in as black and confused a flow. Self-abandoned, relaxed and effortless, I seemed to have laid me down in the dried-up bed of a great river. I heard a flood loosened in remote mountains, and felt the torrent come. To rise I had no will, to flee I had no strength. I lay faint, longing to be dead. One idea only still throbbed lifelike within me, a remembrance of God. It begot an unuttered prayer. These words went wandering up and down in my rayless mind, as something that should be whispered, but no energy was found to express them. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. It was near, and as I had lifted no petition to heaven to avert it, as I had neither joined my hands, nor bent my knees, nor moved my lips, it came. In full, heavy swing the torrent poured over me. The whole consciousness of my life lorn, my love lost, my hope quenched, my faith dead-struck, swayed full and mighty above me in one sullen mass. That bitter hour cannot be described. In truth, the waters came into my soul. I sank in deep mire. I felt no standing— I came into deep waters. The floods overflowed me. You knew it was coming, didn't you? I mean, it couldn't be a happy ending yet. The book isn't over. But more than that, it couldn't be a happy ending this way. We knew something was wrong. We knew something really serious was wrong. And that Rochester was hiding something. And now we know what. Charlotte did some interesting things here. For one, she let Rochester say, you can go to hell, which is kind of shocking. And she did get flack for that. And she does something else that's pretty interesting too. But first, I did want to let you know that if you see any of the Jane Eyre movies, almost all of them just have Mason show up at the church, so he kind of does it on his own, and you just figure that it's some, um, you know, he he had been there and he'd figured out that Rochester was going to marry Jane, and so he just kind of vindictively shows up to stop this. Well, even in the Ruth Wilson version, you don't get the full explanation. You do, however, have the lawyer there, 
just like in the book. And then Mason pops in and says, yes, I testify that I saw her alive. Well, the entire explanation will become even more clear in part two of, of these episodes for uh, 295, where we do chapter 26 and chapter 27. But for now, understand this. Rochester couldn't divorce Bertha. He couldn't legally divorce Bertha. If you've been watching Downton Abbey, and since the season is over, I think all the people who have been hoarding it are probably done watching it. I hope so. Because if you haven't, then take your headphones out of your ears for a second because it's a spoiler alert. Lady Edith has gotten herself into a Jane Eyre-like situation. I am willing to bet Lady Edith is going to make a different decision than Jane is about to make. But, be that as it may, um, this was not... I mean, it feels, it does kind of feel like movie-wasting disease. You know, it's a convenient impediment that the author is erecting in the way of happiness. But it kind of isn't, because this really was a problem. And of course, divorce laws were far worse for women than they were for men. But there was this lunacy law issue. And divorce laws were fairly... Uh, restrictive. There were actually, it's kind of interesting, there were a couple of different kinds of divorce that you could get. One was divorce mensa etoro, which was from bed and board, which is uh, handled by the ecclesiastical courts. I know. Did you know there were ecclesiastical courts? I did not. They handled things like this kind of divorce, which was... Um, more or less like a legal separation, and it meant you couldn't get remarried. Then there was divorce a vinculo matrimonii, which uh, released you from the bonds of marriage. This could only be granted by parliament, and if you got that kind of a divorce, you could remarry. However, as you might imagine, that was a kind of difficult one to get, and you had to be able to prove uh, adultery, um, uh, you had to uh, be a man. <laughs> Divorces a vinculo shall be allowed for adultery and adultery only. Divorces a vinculo shall only be granted on the suit of the husband and not as a general rule on the suit of the wife. I know that the wife, however, may also apply for a divorce a vinculo in cases of aggravated enormity such as incest or bigamy. Now, all of that is fine, except that what I just read to you came from the London Times in May 1853. This was a revision of dangerously bad laws. And in fact, this also comes after the resuscitation of the inexorably slow-moving Court of Chancery, which you've heard about if you've read Bleak House, or even we heard cracks about the Court of Chancery in Gulliver's Travels. You know, we live in such a, uh, a much more open era where freedoms really are taken for granted. You have to think back. These are revisions to the laws. So more strict laws were in place when Charlotte Bronte was writing Jane Eyre. So Rochester is stuck. And I can't tell you too much more about just how stuck he is until you get to the next chapter. What I can tell you is remember that in order for a court case to move forward, both parties have to be sane of sound mind. And 
both parties would have to be able to argue their side of the case. And it's very clear from what little we've seen that Bertha is in no condition to do that. We will learn more about her history in the next chapter. But I want to break here. The next chapter is a a huge Rochester chapter. And I want to break here in moment of of, uh, vindication of Mr. Rochester. I was reading over the last week a lot of literary criticism that had been written from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s about Jane Eyre. And there's a lot of criticism of Rochester that's been going on. And I want to make sure that when we judge our characters, we judge them based on their time. And my husband made a, while we were discussing this, he made a very good point that it's unfair, it's historically unfair to judge Thomas Jefferson negatively for not marrying Sally Hemings. We would like him to have married her, but it's unfair to criticize him for that. It would not have been plausible, much less possible for him to do that during his time on this earth. However, it is absolutely possible to judge him for not freeing his slaves upon his death because George Washington did it. So, so it's, it's again, you, you need to be able to judge these people within the contexts that they lived. If you're going to start claiming better or worse than, or if you're going to say uh, good or bad, it's, it's within their framework, within their sphere of reference. And then with Charlotte Bronte, we have another additional interesting twist. This is a woman who grew up reading these high-flown, overly dramatic, melodramatic stories, tales, twisted tales in these magazines that she and her brothers and sisters read when they were kids. And you see this influence absolutely in Wuthering Heights, and we see it off and on throughout Jane Eyre. Well, today's chapters, 26 and 27, are absolutely showing you the influence of that childhood reading on Charlotte. Now, when she and Branwell were writing their own little magazines and their own little books, they were utilizing all of these things. They always had debauched characters, and there were heroic men, and there were Byronic heroes, and there were tormented women, and there were women of loose morals, and there were all of these crazy things happening. (laughs) You know, they're 14, 15, 16, and they're writing this stuff. They don't know what they're writing about half the time because it's all you know, cloaked in language and kind of alluded to when people talked about passion, the kids were probably kind of left up on their own recognizance to figure out, well, what does that actually mean? What are they being passionate about? What are they doing when it fades to black? It's just like Purple Rose of Cairo, which by the way, if you haven't seen recently, please go back and watch it again. It's held up. And uh, we, we actually watched it with our kids and it's sweet and sad and heartbreaking and marvelous. Uh, And the fade to black joke is one of my favorites. So, back to Rochester and Jane. So, Charlotte Bronte is absolutely drawing on those gothic melodramatic roots from her childhood reading when she creates this impediment to Jane's happiness. Rochester, we already have seen, I'm, I'm hesitating to continue calling him a Byronic hero past the next chapter. We've talked about it before, but Byronic heroes are really people that cannot be saved. They, they are always going to be 
the the dangerous guy who you don't want to take home to dinner to meet your mom. Rochester's got more going on. That's because Charlotte Bronte is an excellent writer. And you're going to get all of it in the next chapter. The Every question you've had about Rochester, everything that's bugged you about him, every thing that you couldn't figure out, you know, why is he doing that? The things that I've brought up saying, God, I'm really getting annoyed with Rochester. Now it all gets answered. And that's great. But the last 30 years of literary criticism have judged Rochester very harshly. And I've read lots of criticism saying that he caused Bertha's mental break, that Victorian restrictions on sexuality caused Bertha's mental break, that Rochester was cruel to lock her up with Grace Poole. And that's the one that I can talk about right now, but without ruining anything for you in the next chapter. Please remember what few options there were available to families who had family members who were mentally unstable. And I'm not talking about people who were depressed, and I'm not talking even about people with bipolar disorder. I'm talking especially about paranoid schizophrenia and uh, mental disorders that can lead you to be violent towards others or towards yourself. Now, we know from The Women in White, if you read The Women in White with us, that there were some asylums that you paid for quite heavily that treated the inmates pretty well. But we also know that there were plenty of asylums, Bedlam being the most famous, where the places truly earned their name Madhouse. Uh, If you watched any of the versions of Dracula, you saw how Dr. Seward's hospital has been portrayed. That's probably actually entirely not off. As I, as I think I mentioned when we did Dracula, um, the mental institutions often used to give wealthy people tours of their facilities. Uh, people would visit the loonies and go and make fun of them and poke them with sticks and things like that behind the iron bars. I mean, these could have been horrible or horrifying or both places. And it is to Rochester's credit that He didn't stick her in one. Now, of course, he has money. He could have stuck her in a very nice place, but he doesn't do that. And part of it is probably that he wants to keep it secret. And part of it is also that he can't bring himself to. And you're going to hear more about that in the next chapter. But I, (laughs) my husband even said he could have pushed her out a window and no one would have cared or noticed, which is true. And he doesn't. So, I, I just kind of wanted to put it out there that I think it is unfair to judge Rochester outside of his time. It is also unfair to judge Jane outside of her time. And this chapter and the next will show you the depth of the strength of Jane's character. And I mean the depth. She has to dig deep and pull hard to keep herself moving forward in these two chapters. And it is a testimony to Charlotte Bronte's spine and her ability as a writer that she manages to pull this off because it is not easy. 
because I think we know what we all want to happen. But you have to watch and see what actually does happen. These chapters, uh, the chapter that you just listened to, you could probably be doing housework or vacuuming or whatever while you're listening. I would save the next chapter and listen when you can put your whole mind, I don't say this very often, when you can put everything you've got into listening to what Rochester's about to say. Because the entire rest of the book and the entire first two-thirds of the book hinge on what he reveals there. All right? Oh, two last little newsy bits I forgot to tell you. Listener Ellie has a pattern in the Crochet Project. This is issue number one. It is their Botanicals Spring-Summer issue, 2013. It's called The Crochet Project at, I know you're shocked, thecrochetproject.com. I love it when they can do that. And um, we have a link to them from the show notes for this episode, 295 part one. Also, Emily needs stem cells. I know I've talked about stem cell registry before. If you haven't gotten yourself on the registry, please do. Lots of people need lots of help. Please take a look at the link in the show notes for the show. Thank you so much. So, I'm going to stop 295 Part 1 now and move on to a new file. So it'll be a new MP3 file for you for 295 Part 2, where we will listen to Chapter 27 of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Talk to you soon. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlit.com, just-the-books.com, or via our Android or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlit app to access premium subscriber content. Just the Books and Craftlit are made possible by the support of our listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. Just the Books and Craftlet are produced by Penny Shima-Glantz and Elizabeth Green-Musselman and Heather Woodover. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.